Uh, ironically, it actually sounds like a Swiss Army knife. <laughs> Good point. And that, that would be the perfect gift thing. Imagine a, a big box and a Swiss Army knife in one package. That'd be an awesome Christmas gift. <laughs> nice. Yeah, that, that's a that's a good idea. Although it has less pointy edges, I have to say. <laughs> Guy Swan has like an awesome ad for us. Like he came up with a with with himself that he says it's like the preferred hardware wallet for prisons because you can put it places. <laughs> I'm not sure if I embrace that. <laughs> kind of funny. Wow. Welcome to Bitcoin Basics with your hosts, Faris and Gordon. Visit bitcoinbasics.help if you need help buying and securing your Bitcoin. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Bitcoin Basics podcast here with your hosts, Faris and Gordon. It is August the 4th, 2022. The price of Bitcoin is 22850 the block height is 747,918 and Satoshi's per dollar is 4,376. Gordon, how are you doing today? Good, thanks, Ferris. Uh, a little bit unusual for us to be recording at night. That's why Ferris looks so sleepy. That's why I look so hungry. But uh, we just interviewed. <laughs> We just interviewed Staticus from Shift Crypto, uh, and he's came on to talk to us about the Bitbox or two. I can't actually believe, Ferris, that we haven't had him on the show before. We mm. talk about hardware wallets all the time and getting your keys off the exchange or whatnot. And as you know, from the title of the podcast, this is a Bitcoin Basics podcast. So I could, in the past, really only recommend Bitcoin-only hardware wallets, and there are only a handful of them. And... I think for us, after this interview, although I would like to play with it a little bit more, I will be recommending, I'll be changing my recommendation um, to the Bitbox O2. Yeah, so I've I have I've received one. I've not had a chance to play with it yet. I'm going to do a review on that, and then we're going to have Roland Lerostaticus back on. And yeah, I was very impressed with him. I mean, he, this, he was incredibly humble and open as to uh, mistakes – that the company has made, um, you know, ways they could improve. And just, yeah, I mean, this was just, you know, Gordon wanted to play devil's advocate and him with hard questions. And um, yeah, it, which we thought we did. And he's like, oh, give me harder questions. <laughs> yeah. I, I, uh, I couldn't actually think of many harder questions, but um, maybe when he comes back on, I'll, I'll, I'll think about some more, some, some better questions sort of softballs, but uh, even, even the, acknowledgement of the uh, marketing breach of some of his customers. Mm. Um, I mean, completely honest and transparent about that, which is great. And I can't say that's the case for other companies. They usually wait until sort of it gets leaked to the press that that happened and then they release a press statement. So uh, yeah, that very is impressive company and yeah, very impressive individual. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And so, yeah, if you are listening to us for the first time, welcome Please subscribe and, and like us on whatever podcast platform you're listening to, because uh, that helps to get you know the word out about Bitcoin education, and that's what we're about. So please share it with your family and friends. And here's the interview. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, like, and share, so we can find others like yourself. Thanks again. Um, for joining us on the show, Staticus, um, 
you, you might have to explain that one in a second. And, and we want to get into Shift Crypto and Bitbox and everything like that. But how about, I know it's a boring question, um, who are you? And feel free to answer that however you want. All right. So we, we quickly talked about it beforehand, where Staticus come from. Um, it's actually like a player name from 30 years ago or so, Age of Empires, the emperor that takes over the world. Never thought it would stick. And now I go to conferences with that name. So that's kind of a funny thing. In real life, I'm an IT engineer. I mainly worked at um, big IT consultancies like Accenture, PricewaterhouseCoopers. But over the years, I realized I need to follow my heart. So I also started the Recipe Bolt guide, which was one of the first guides that um, made running a full note on a Raspberry Pi popular. And with that in mind, I joined um, Shift Crypto, my current employer, um, which I'm also a co-founder now. Um, I built... Um, a full node project at Shift Crypto. Unfortunately, we shelved it over time because market conditions changed. There was so much free competition coming to market. So we might have been a bit early. But not to digress too much, IT engineer coming from big companies. I follow my heart. And I work at a Bitcoin company, which is awesome. And having the time of my life focusing on Bitcoin and hardware security. Um, our goal is to make Bitcoin self-custody as accessible to newbies as possible, make it super simple so there's no excuse to leave your coins on an exchange. And that's what I do now, day and night, when I'm not 3D printing stuff or tinkering with Raspberry Pis or whatever. Oh, so you're like me. You have nightmares of, uh, oh, if I upgrade my firmware, will I brick my device? That kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. I know that this doesn't happen with the Bitbox, but if you run it on a Pi or whatever, it's always a chance that stuff goes <laughs> out. Yeah. Um, before we get into all that, uh, what, what was your Bitcoin aha moment? Did you go the route that I went through altcoins and then come back to Bitcoin? What was your light bulb moment? I cannot really pinpoint it anymore. Um, it was very quite a, quite a, a while ago. Um, I think I learned about Bitcoin many times before it clicked. Then, of course, Bitcoin was like mind-blown, then Ethereum mind-blown, then all the other coins mind-blown, ran a lot of white papers, had my altcoin face. Um, but I think at the height of 2017, I sold all altcoins um, because I just couldn't take it anymore, like psychological stress, like following charts in the middle of the night and all that stuff and just decided family is more important um my my peace of mind is more important so i'm basically bitcoin only since then um although i call myself a bitcoin minimalist i'm everybody needs to go through that phase if they choose to i think i, I don't really believe in toxicity or belittling people that have do experiments. Um, but for my own purpose, I'm interested in Bitcoin as a money, as an asset, as a revolution, as a tool to separate money and state in the end, 
maybe eventually, or mm. at least give them a good run for their money and have an option available for everybody who wants to opt out. And if we can achieve that with Bitcoin, just bringing some competition onto the monetary market, I think Bitcoin does, does its job very well. Yeah, I can agree more, with, especially with your journey as to how you came to Bitcoin. I, unfortunately, to this day, I'm still waking up in the middle of the night looking at the charts, which, uh, um, you know, what they say about experience is the worst teacher. It gives you the test without the lesson. Um, what are you yeah. finding these days? Because um, we yeah, have, have been in, I don't like the term, but just for the sake of people out there, a bear market, even though Bitcoin is probably net on a logarithmic scale has never experienced a bear market. So if we are technically in a bear market on the price of Bitcoin, um, what misunderstandings or myth busting are you still coming across these days when it comes to Bitcoin? So I think the, the narratives against Bitcoin change over time. Although they are, there are some evergreens um, at the moment. I, I do speak with a lot of regular people, which might be the exception for some Bitcoiners, but I still have some contacts that don't own Bitcoin. And their first question today is usually uh, energy consumption. Mm. And this straight comes from like a very, very simplified narrative of the mainstream media mm. where you just compare the energy amount of one transaction um, to the energy consumption of a whole country, which doesn't make any sense at all. Um, of course, energy doesn't I had... break down to transactions and mm. it's not the same energy. It's not primary energy and, and so on and so on. Yeah. So that's the yeah. main thought I see at the moment. But from you, from newcomers that actually have like an open mind, I think most struggle still with just like the paradigm shift mm. of what a wallet is, that it's actually not the coins are in the wallet, but it's more like a keychain. Mm -hmm. um, the coins are on the blockchain. Where do I buy them? Is it just like a foreign currency or stuff like that? So very who owns it? Who controls it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So these are like the, the erring, evergreen questions, with, uh, which I'm more than happy to answer over and yeah. over again. Yeah. So I was laughing because just yesterday morning, I was having the same conversation with someone about Bitcoin's energy consumption. I said, you have to compare like for like. And what is there like Bitcoin, which can provide a service, a store of value to the two and a half unbanked billion, billion people in the world? There isn't. So there, you can't complain about its energy consumption when there's nothing that you can compare it to. Um, so with that, still explaining to Bitcoin, because I still have this conversation, people say, I finally bought some Bitcoin. And I'll say, where is it? Like, what do you mean? You know, I went to a website and I bought it. And we didn't have to explain that. Are you still finding that conversation with people new to space a bit difficult? Or are they getting a better grasp of it? Or I think the overall, the information material available to everyone has improved a lot. Um, most people don't directly go and buy books and read them, but if you just research a bit of online, there's a lot of very good material. And I think it's indexed enough that it actually pops up besides all the, the scammy and malicious articles. So of course you still need to do a bit of your own research because there's a lot of misinformation available online as well. But I think most 
companies in the space put in a lot of effort to explain basic principles, educate their users, not only sell the products. We do the same. We have so many basic articles on our Shift Crypto mm. blog. And we because it's just easy to engage in a conversation and after the first few basic questions, you send them a link and they can read it on their own terms and in their own time. I think that that's something that scales very well. That's actually how Shift came onto my radar. I was, I was looking at, I mean, I've, I've known about the big box for a while, but I was looking at multi-seek and solutions and I'm like, oh, I, I'm not sure if this is a good idea or not. And I read the article, um, the pitfalls on multi-seek when using hardware wallets. And that is absolutely mm-hmm. brilliant. I'll link that one in the show notes. Cool. And it's, you know, all about implementing a solution that is quite complicated. And uh, sometimes, you know, well, most times complexity is the enemy of security. Although mm-hmm. I'm not sure I totally agree with that statement. I think if you can make something secure, but it's simple to use, then you can kind of have both. But anyway, I'm getting off the track. Um, we're talking about hardware wallets. And um, here's the here's your opportunity. Feel free to pitch or, or whatever. Uh, what is the Bitbox O2? Perhaps just going through your features and, and maybe some of the differences between the other manufacturers. Sure. Maybe I take a step back and quickly um, uh, present Shift Crypto first, mm, yeah. because I think we have a pretty cool um, history as well. Um, so m- not, many people still don't know about the Bitbox hardware wallet, but Development actually started in 2015, uh, which was uh, ages ago in the crypto space or Bitcoin space. And back then it was called a digital Bitbox. The bit, now we call it Bitbox 01, as opposed to our current product, the Bitbox 02. And the, co- the Shift Crypto was actually founded by uh, Jonas Schnelli and our current CEO, Douglas Beckham. So two very hardcore Bitcoiners, like Jonas being one of the only people as a Bitcoin core maintainer that can actually, could actually change the code in Bitcoin. And although he's not as active anymore, um, both in our company or in Bitcoin core development, um, he's still a great friend. And um, yeah, it's, it's great to work with people like that. So the first Bitbox came up. Um, to market, I think, at the same time as the Trezor. Um, Ledger was not yet fun, founded even. So we have a lot of time um, that we spent on developing our products. We're an open source company. Everything we do is open source. All code is open source. We even publish the hardware specs, everything, to uh, minimize trust as much as we can. We're based in Zurich, Switzerland, and the Bitbox is actually made in Switzerland. We produce it in Switzerland, um, which is a great help in keeping the supply chain secure. So it's not like something that is made in China and shipped to Switzerland and then we stamp it and sell it. It's actually made and programmed by us. So, yeah, that's what we do. We also have some other products like backup accessories and some cool hats and T-shirts. But the Bitbox O2, the hardware wallet, of course, is our main product. And almost all engineering efforts go into that. And Faris and I talk all the time about open source. And, and we try and be open source education and get it out there. Uh, there's a lot of misinformation. I'm not going to. I'm not going to go into it, but uh, just for our audience, um, we've talked about hardware wallets before and how some aspects of the hardware wallet is open source, so the actual desktop or, or mobile wallet, but the actual firmware, the 
the basically the operating system inside the Hubble wallet is not open source. And so m- maybe you could just go into, you've got that dual, uh, dual chip design and how you're open source throughout the whole process. Yeah. So as you mentioned, we, we are pretty proud of our dual chip um, design, the security architecture that we built upon. And before that, it was it was you basically faced a chain a challenge or a choice that either you had physical security by using a, a secure element or a secure chip this is what ledger does but if you run the code on that secure element you are not prevented from open sourcing or publishing the code because it's protected by ndas and it's it's like it's basically trade secrets, right? So the manufacturer of the chip does not allow you to publish the code. And that's fine um, to some extent, um, but there's you you just trust the manufacturer of the hardware wallet a lot. So you first of all, of course, you trust them to not be malicious, which I would never accuse anyone of, but you also trust them to do their proper research and bug fixing themselves because nobody else can look at the code. So the only box that could be discovered is internally in the company. And that's not something that scales very well. The other extreme is uh, the model that Tresor, for example, has. They also open source all their code, which is awesome. I respect them a lot for that. Um, But they use not a secure chip, otherwise they wouldn't be able to do that. Um, but just a general purpose microcontroller, a, basically a computer chip that you can find in any coffee machine. Um, they're on great and secure code, but they're not physically secure. So when I was at the Breaking Bitcoin conference, I think 2019 or so in Amsterdam, Ledger actually presented how they broke the treasure and re- read out all the secrets in like five minutes. Of course, that's like super scary. Um, I agree with Tresor's um, as, um, assessment that hardware wallets mainly protect you against against remote theft. That means like viruses, malware, stuff that comes over the internet. And they do a great job in that. Um, but for me personally, I think a hardware wallet should also protect your keys if you lose it on the street or you just have it in a drawer. And if someone breaks in and gets a physical access to the, to your device, um, mm. that's not really possible with an MCU because if you have a, a semi-decent electronics lab, you can read out the content of these chips. So what we do is we combine these two chips. We have both. And we use a secure element to physically harden the device, but we don't trust it. And we don't run the code on that chip all code still runs on a like coffee machine chip, um, which is fully auditable. But we, but the secure chip is still part of the security architecture. So you would need to breach the secure chip as well physically if you want to like uh, decode all the secrets. So I think in that regard, we have the best of both worlds and a mm. product that is fully open source while still being physically secure. That's fascinating, Static, because this is a conversation we have a lot because Gordon and I often talk about and explain to our audience a trade-off between security and convenience. 
And the most secure way for someone to um, control their private keys would be um, something like a steel wallet or, but someone new to this space, you're terrified because you think I can easily lose this thing. I can easily lose a piece of paper. So noobs coming into this space um, to them are, if I lose this cold storage device, I know all I got to do is buy another one. Mm -hmm. I can back up all my coins. And that is a security blanket, an emotional security blanket for them. So yeah, this is why one of the reasons we're excited to talk about cold storage devices, because it's, mm -hmm. it's hitting that middle ground of security and convenience. Um, yeah. And Listening to that, sorry to interrupt that mm -hmm. immediately pops up like two topics in my head. Mm -hmm. So um, first I think like security versus usability is a false dichotomy. For, for me, and we stress that over and over again, um, I think ease of use is part of the security. If, yep. you, if something is hard to use, it makes it less secure because yep. you're tempted to um, take shortcuts. You might make mistakes. Um, so in the full extreme, like if you set up your own air-gapped computer that is like maximal secure, take out the network card, et cetera, that, that's super secure, but it's also extremely hard to use. And you only need to like mess up once to like blow out the whole security into the internet. And that's it. So having something that is easy to use and secure, I think is, is doable. And this is definitely our goal. And the second I, thing is that oh, um, no, don't go, go. the hardware wallet and the the, the the steel wallet or the backup, um, I'm, I'm always very clear that um, they both are like an integral part of your of securing your Bitcoin. So you, if you have a hardware wallet, the like the job of the hardware wallet is to keep your secure keys secure, but also usable. So you can use your keys, receive coins, send transactions without worrying about viruses or malware on your computer. But the job of the hardware wallet is not long-term storage. Long-term storage is the job of the backup in whatever form. It can be just a piece of paper that you put somewhere safe. It could be a steel wallet. But of course, if you have like a steel wallet that's super secure and it's, it will last centuries, but you can't use the keys. Because that's so much math involved, you need to import them first to sign a transaction or even just to generate the receiving address. So you need both. You actually triggered me with about 10 questions just then. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, but just going back to the air capped uh, solution, and I know uh, cold card, and I've used cold card, and, um, and, and this is an honest comment because I think I've uh, said it on the show, you know. Sometimes there's a lot of security theater and some, some of the things that uh, they do, for example, with aircap computer and without going into it, instead of having things plugged into the device and whatever, you basically take that activity offline and you use a micro SD card and you transfer the transactions between the computer and whatever. Um, as you said, that increases the complexity and there's something that could go wrong to that. And also you're inserting an SD card into your computer. And what if your computer has malware? Well, if it's a hardware device, it's unlikely to be able to actually get to that device. But if it's an SD card, if it was Bitcoin specific malware, it could actually change transactions and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, I'm getting off the topic. Um, I believe you guys are the only ones who have an encrypted connection um, 
noise 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 channel, I think it is, between the hardware device through the USB bus to the computer. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's correct. So the first time you, um, so again, a step back, you get the bit box. Um, of course, there's no keys on it, as it's the case with all hardware wallets. You need to set up your own wallet and it needs a lot of um, entropy, I mean, randomness to generate your seed and your keys and everything. And then you back that wallet, um, in. you create a backup of this wallet. But the first time you plug in then the Bitbox, um, you use it with our own Bitbox app, which is available for all platforms, including Android. So you can you, you never need to connect the Bitbox to a computer if you don't want to. You can just use a, an Android phone and do everything, including firmware updates from there. And the first time you connect these two, um, you see it at, at like a confirmation code. You know that stuff. For example, if you like pair a Bluetooth device or something like that, you just need to confirm that the code that you see on the Bitbox app matches the code that the Bitbox O2 hardware wallet displays. And if you confirm that, you know that there's no man in the middle, um, there's nobody listening. And from that point on going forward, you have an end-to-end encrypted encrypted communication channel from the Bitbox app to the Bitbox. And that means that even if you have malware on your computer, it's like it's not like 100% proof because, of course, like the the, the channel cha- the keys are somewhere on your computer as well. So if you have like super targeted malware, um, it, it might still be able to like somehow weasel itself into the communication. But if you're just listening to the USB um, traffic or if you have a malicious USB cable or something that locks all the data from like an adapter or whatever, it will no- never be able to um, listen into the communication of the Bitbox app and the hardware wallet, which is not really a security feature, to be honest, because the Bitbox app doesn't believe anything the computer says anyway. Um, but of course, it's great to improve your sec- like the privacy of your transactions like your, and, and just minimize the attack surface. Yeah, and you, you have an excellent, well, uh, Shift has an excellent uh, threat model page, which I'll link in the description because you actually go through all the things, you know, all the online, offline, all the attacks that Faris and I have been talking about for years. And it's done in such a succinct way that anyone buying a hardware wallet should be looking at that first because you guys have obviously thought about it. Not to say that other hardware wallet manufacturers haven't, but uh, yeah, there's obviously a lot of thought that's gone into that. Cool. Thanks. Um, so in terms of backup, because other solutions and people who have got a hardware wallet will um, be familiar with the 24 words. So you've got your hardware wallet. If you lose it, no problem. You buy another hardware wallet. As long as you've got the 24 words, you re- recover them onto that device. But you're going an extra step and having a backup onto the SD card. Is that another layer of complexity, another thing that people have to store? Or what, what was the decision behind that? So from what we experience especially with people new to bitcoin um there's something that we we call uh, mnemonic anxiety so maybe you you remember back in the days when you set up your first horror wallet and had to write down 24 words you had no idea what these words are you were super careful not to make a single typo or anything you didn't know that only the first four word uh, characters for example are already make the word unique so 
even like it's, is it singular? Is it plural? All that stuff um, is like super confusing to newcomers. And of course it takes a while. You, you shouldn't, you should do it in a, in a private space, not, not have anyone like looking over your shoulder, stuff like that. This is why we think um, if you initialize your Bitbox O2 and you create your wallet, the first backup you do is on the integrated micro SD card writer, reader, whatever. So um, it comes with everything. The micro SD card is enclosed with the device. So you basically set it up, you do a backup, you have your micro SD card and be done with it. We have a speed run, I think, on Twitter, setting up the Bitbox in under one minute, including the backup. And I think from a usability perspective, that's, that's, that's really valuable. Of course, you still have the option to run the 24 words. That's also available. And we even, we also recommend that, but maybe at a later stage, once you have received the first transaction or, Mm -hmm. or whenever you're comfortable and understand it a bit more. But I don't think the medium actually is that important where you have the backup, um, because Contrary to popular belief, like if you don't use the micro SD card and write and read constantly, this thing lasts decades and it's not susceptible Mm. to electromagnetic interference. So it's really secure. Um, But more important than having one super secure backup is that you just have to like redundancy. And then you should always assume that one backup can go missing or go corrupt or burn down with your house or whatever. So if you have two, mm. you're good. One thing I want to ask you, Stikus, and this is a, a low tech question. Um, recently, we uh, we had to help one of our clients um, move their private keys from an exchange into a ledger. And it was a bit of a nightmare because the cable to her MacBook Air we had to try so many times because Ledger Live just was not picking up the Ledger device, and we had to try different cables. Um, but from the Bitbox operates differently. You don't actually need a cable. It can go straight in, and you have these little adapters. Can you just talk a little bit about what led to that? Because I looked at that and, you know, operating on a MacBook Air myself, I'm thinking, oh, wow, that's awesome. Um, it would have solved this problem. Okay. And you mentioned as well that you don't even need a computer. It can go via a phone. Can you just um, talk a little bit more about that? And if you know these issues other people were having, was was that part of the design? Yeah. Um, thanks. Yeah, great question. We talked about the Bitbox and they didn't even show it. So <laughs> that's the Bitbox O2. And you can see it has a, a USB-C mail adapter. So the dis- decision behind that um, is we're moving more and more into a mobile-first world. So what I can do, I just take my phone and plug it in and it it it, show, it lights up. So you see there's um, like a screen. If it's not plugged in, you don't even see that it has a screen. So it's like really a super like private device. Nobody would expect that to hold like thousands or maybe even millions of dollars. Um, so if you have a modern laptop, you just plug it in directly, USB-C. Every Mac should have that, I think. Um, of course... If you you have a desktop computer, every Bitbox comes with a, with an extension cable. So it's like a USB-C to USB-C. So you can use it on a MacBook just with a bit more like wiggle room. 
And what we also include is a, a little tiny adapter, um, USB-C to USB-A. So you just plug in the cable and then you can plug it into any legacy computer or whatever that has a regular USB adapter. And, and all that's included. That's one of our premises. You buy a BitBox and you shouldn't need to buy any accessories if you don't want to. So everything's already in the box. Well, I'm impressed, Faris, because it works on a Mac, so it must be pretty good. <laughs> um, you uh, Looking at other, and, and I just uh, noticed today, actually, that um, Trezor has a Bitcoin-only firmware. Could you explain why Bitbox, because I think you have two models, uh, you know, uh, one to store your XRP in Ethereum and uh, the mm-hmm. other one's uh, Bitcoin-only. What, why, why do that? And also, I guess a sub-question that, the Bitcoin only firmware, is that just a subset of the overall one or is that a rewrite from scratch? Let me quickly check. So what, what we actually do is we do sell a, a Bitcoin only device. And for us, we try to avoid security theater. <laughs> so with competitors that have um, Bitcoin only firmware, you can actually have a, a, a device running Bitcoin-only firmware, but you can reflash it with a whatever other firmware without even unlocking the device. So there's absolutely no security advantage in having it. Um, what we do is if you buy a Bitcoin, a Bitbox O2's Bitcoin-only edition, which by the way, we sell about 50-50. So it's the same price. It has less features. People still buy it. Uh, 50% of the time. So people see value in that. Um, you will never be able to run any other firmware on that device. Then, of course, you can update, but it's always Bitcoin-only firmware. And we guarantee that. Because the main reason behind it, from a technological perspective, to have a Bitcoin-only device is to reduce the complexity of the device. Every line of code every external dependency that you might have is a potential attack vector. The the more code you have, the bigger your attack surface. And it's at the moment, it's more of a theoretical advantage, I have to say. Um, But less code means less attack surface, less external libraries uh, mean less external dependencies. So in theory, the Bitcoin only device is really more secure and of course, then if you cannot like simply flash uh, whatever other firmware, then it's actually a security feature. What we also like, find is that sorry. people like to buy it to gift to people they care about and prevent them to immediately buy Bitcoin 2.0. So it's <laughs> like a like hand-holding a bit the, the gift recipient to show, okay, here's your secure device. You're welcome but you cannot store any ripple on it. <laughs> it's like having a house with only one door and you protect that one door really well instead of having a house with like a thousand doors around it. It makes total sense to me. I, I was going to be playing devil's advocate and I'm really struggling to find some uh, <laughs> some attacking questions here, but I'll try. Why? So I just looking at your website, uh, Bitbox O2 is $129 and that's not including the shipping. Why shouldn't someone go out and buy a $50 Blockstream Jade or $70 Trezor One? Um, 
I mean, I would, these devices are probably secure. I am not a, like a hardware hacker myself. So, um, but I wouldn't assume, I think they're, they're already great. Right. Um, on the other hand, if you store like a lot of coins, um, I don't think the price point should be too big of a difference because you need to compare the Bitbox O2 also with second generation hardware wallets like the Trezor um, Model T, which I think is over 200 euros wow. or the Ledger Nano S, which is also, I think, close to or 180 or so. We're actually a bit cheaper than the um, second generation hardware wallets. With Ledger, I would always reply, well, if you value private, uh, like physical protection, then you should get a Bitbox or a Ledger. Um, with Ledger, I would always reply, if you value open source, you should get a Trezor or a Bitbox. And with the Jade, I'm, I, I have one here. It's it's a nice device. It's I think it's um, fairly decent but of course it's like general purpose um, computer hardware um, that is not made for mass production um, and it does also doesn't have a secure element they have something like a virtual secure element but i think that's somehow server-based um, so there's maybe a multi-sig involved or blockstream co-signing I'm, I'm i'm not really sure but it, it feels like complicated to make it secure and overall, I think the, the user experience of the Bitbox is simply the most, the easiest um, to use for beginners. And we always say like, it's like the easiest to start, but it grows with you. So you have mm. a lot of expert features that you might not be aware of in the beginning. And that's by design. We don't want to confuse you back Run, connecting it to your own node or using Tor or all that stuff. You can all do that. You have coin control and whatnot, but it's not like in your face. If you don't care yeah. about it or never heard about it, you probably don't see it. As soon as you learn that this mm -hmm. has, it has value, it's there. Uh, ironically, it actually sounds like a Swiss army knife. <laughs> Good point. And that, that would be the perfect gifting. Imagine a, a big box and a Swiss Army knife in one package. It'd be an awesome Christmas gift. <laughs> nice. Yeah, that, that's a that's a good idea. Although it has less pointy edges, I have to say. <laughs> Guy Swan has like an awesome ad for us. Like he came up with a with with himself that he says it's like the preferred hardware wallet for prisons because you can put it places. <laughs> I'm not sure if I embrace that. <laughs> kind of funny. <laughs> wow. Well, moving on from that. Um <laughs> Uh, no, that's that's brilliant, and, and that's one of the reasons why I uh, can't recommend a hardware wallet that doesn't have a secure element. Um, as I said before, like I'm sure you know, block. I, I've never used Blockstream uh, Jade, um, so for online attack services, probably okay. But as you mentioned before, like brute force and physical access to a device, if you don't have a secure element, that device is gone. And if it's a ledger, the firmware's closed source, so. I mean, Ledger has a reputation to protect, so I'm sure that they're kind of doing the right thing, but you don't know. Um, you, you have no way of telling. Um, but for us, it's really also a kind of sticking with the Bitcoin ethos to have everything mm. open source, yeah. build on the sh shoulder of giants, publish the codes for other, even to reuse if they choose to, and just like fight 
transparently because security is always like back and forth. And mm. what open source allows us to do is of course to also run our own bug bounty program. So we encourage independent security researchers to look at our code. And if they find something that we can Excellent. improve, we, we pay them a bug bounty, even if it's a non-critical oh, wow. issue. Um, so it's just like about incentives. Um, mm. We don't have we have we don't have anything to hide. Um, we are up, uh, and I think we're. Um, it needs some sort of humility as well. If people come with improvements to you, you need mm. to be open and put your users first. But I think we um, we've proven in the past that we do that without thinking twice. Is that yeah, sometimes is a scary thing? Sorry. No, you go, go first. first. Sorry. I was just going to say, is that sometimes a scary thing? You've open sourced everything. You've built a business model around it. You've got a product and people are able to uh, potentially find a game-changing exploit in your code. Yep. Um, I mean, there's definitely pros and cons, but I think in the long run, um, and I... I mean, I record this uh, conversation on my Linux computer. Um, it's been shown over and over again that security by obscurity just doesn't scale because then only people that actually want to exploit your code are incentivized to look at your code. And they will sooner or later, maybe a little bit later, but still they will find vulnerabilities. But you don't give anybody honest the option to find it first. And then you have an attacker at hand. If you follow the open source ethos and be very transparent, have a bug bounty program, be like professional enough to be um, transparent and not not too proud to admit that there might be some mistakes and just fix it and put users first. I think that's that's something that scales and it's what I personally would expect from the manufacturer of my security device that holds my own life savings. So, uh, I absolutely couldn't agree more. And before Faris gets mm-hmm. in, uh, security by obscurity is something. I, I, do you listen to Steve Gibson's Security Now podcast by any chance? Mm, not, not okay. regularly. Not. Anyway, he, he mentioned that all the time. And, and the analogy is sort of like security by trying to hide something. So, for example, you know, you hide your, instead of hiding your front door key, under the mat, I'll be really clever and hide it in the pot plan or I'll hide it in the <laughs> second rock in the garden. If if someone doesn't find it, they can't get it. But if someone actually gets your key, it's game over. So you should just make a more secure door, like just mm-hmm. design a system that is more secure instead of trying to hide all this stuff. And that's what closed source is. It might be secure, but probably more often than not, there aren't many people looking at it. Their employers work Monday to Friday, nine to five. And, you know, having less eyeballs on it, having less people see the code uh, is usually a huge disadvantage. But I have a very important question for you. What flavor distribution of Linux are you running? Um, I use it for business stuff. So I just use Ubuntu. Uh, I'm running so much other stuff, but <laughs> all based on Debian somewhat at some down the line. I'm not not a fan of continuous updates like Manjaro or, or Arch Linux. I mean, in the end, it just needs to run. And mm. Ubuntu or whatever Debian system does that job very well. 
I'm right. So the, reason, the reason I'm <laughs> laughing is when, when Gordon and I first started educating people about Bitcoin, the number one thing he wanted to set up was how to set up a separate uh, Linux hard drive, how to, you know, and he, show, he we've got, I think what, 13 hours of video guides on how to buy Bitcoin. Those 13 hours is everything you need to do before you even think about buying Bitcoin. And part of it is we just show people how to set up the Linux hard drives. That's why I'm laughing. Um, Cause yeah, you're preaching to, to Gordon and you've just got a new fanboy in there, I think. <laughs> no, I, I was a fanboy for about 30 seconds until I mentioned Ubuntu. I'm, 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 I'm out of here. Sorry about that. No, I'm only yeah, kidding. I'm only kidding. Just a tool. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm a, I'm a rolling release sort of person. So I, I change distros every three months and I'm, I'm currently on Manjaro, but I'm, I'm sort of hopping around a bit. Faris, you go before we get down a Linux uh, rabbit hole. No, I just, yeah, I just want to talk about open source because me personally coming from a non-tech background, um, Open source was one of those things where by the time I actually understood it, I really, really valued it. And a lot of what we do now is when we're explaining Bitcoin is we explain open source. Because uh, one of the big um, misunderstandings or hurdles, um, intellectual hurdles people have is, well, he created Bitcoin, who controls it? Mm-hmm. And, you know, most people would not know that, you know, um, half the world is running on Linux servers and all this kind of stuff. So when you explain open source to people, then they comprehend and it, it is another light bulb moment. And I think that's, that's why for us, it's really important that we explain open source to people as, and even before we're explaining Bitcoin, it really helps them understand it. So yeah, kudos to you for, for running open source. And I know with Gordon, um, whenever we talk about anything, his, we, we can't go a day without him mentioning open source somehow. So it's, um, <laughs> Yeah, something nice. I've come to really, really uh, appreciate and just go, oh, wow, it is quite a phenomenal, um, you know, not I wouldn't call it movement, but just, yeah, grasping open sources is quite revolutionary. Religion. Yeah, religion, thank you. Yeah. Uh, Definitely. And I think it's always like comparing the, the power that one company has and all the brain power and all the innovation. If you have it closed source, you basically go against the ingenuity of the whole rest of the world. If if you're like trying to compete with open source, it works in some aspects if you have very focused products or like business customers and stuff like that. But overall, even Microsoft starts getting more and more into open source development mm. because like Microsoft against the rest of the world is just something that will not work like in the long term. Yeah, I think that does serve in every single Fortune 500 companies using open source in mm. one way or another. So, and I, I can't well, remember actually Linux. Sorry. Yeah. So it's funny you mentioned Microsoft because one of the um, examples or analogies I use to explain open source is Encarta versus Wikipedia. When Encarta came out, no one would have guessed that this Wikipedia thing, which anyone can contribute to, would overtake Encarta. And it only took a couple of years. So it's like, it's like the hive mind putting together all their mm-hmm. innovation potential. I think that's very powerful. So we're all about privacy here as well. We've talked a lot about security and um, different forms of privacy. Um, obviously, with a secure hardware wallet like Bitbox, um, privacy is, is just important. And for those who don't know, and we're, we're, we've talked briefly on the podcast about running a full node. 
Uh, we haven't really delved hugely into it. We probably need to, but we certainly have said why it's important. Um, because even if we use, say, Bitboxer 2, we're still, you know, checking price and doing all kinds of stuff through your service. So could you maybe explain why running a full node is important and maybe um, a bit about the Raspberry, what was it, Raspberry Bolt? Uh, yeah, exactly. Node. Yeah. So first of all, like running full nodes is very important. <laughs> um I think there's always two aspects um, to holding your own keys. So the first is security. And the, this is the job of the hardware wallet to keep your coins secure out of the hands of malware, out of the hands of physical attackers. Um, but then there's also the privacy aspect. And a hardware wallet is not able to talk directly to the Bitcoin blockchain. Even the Bitbox app or another software wallet that you can use like Sparrow or Spectre or Electrum that you can also use with the Bitbox. They don't talk to the Bitcoin blockchain directly because they're just a wallet, like a, a key manager. But what you need to be an actual participant of the Bitcoin peer-to-peer -peer network is to, to run your own node. That doesn't necessarily need, mean that you need to have a dedicated device just installing Bitcoin Core, syncing the blockchain, that's also your own full node. So that's that's a very good start. Unfortunately, Bitcoin Core is not really meant to be used with hardware wallets. So usually you have a, a base layer like Bitcoin Core that talks to the Bitcoin blockchain. Then you have a middle layer that indexes all the stuff and is able to answer the questions like, what, like how who owns what on what address, for example. Um, that's the middleware that usually is an Electrum server. But the Electrum server gets the information from Bitcoin Core. And the Electrum server then is the basically the server backend of the software wallet. So if you have the Bitbox app, for example, even on your phone, by default, it connects to our own Shift Crypto Electrum servers. And that means that you lose quite a bit of privacy because, of course, um, your Bitbox app, but that's the case with every uh, Bitcoin wallet, oh. needs to ask the server, um, could you please tell me for these addresses, do they have any coins on it? And with that, you basically tell the server what addresses you control. And we are based in Switzerland. We don't track any IP addresses. These are automatically anonymized. We reduce server loggings to the bare minimum that we need to have a reliable server. But but still, you know, if if there's like a, a court order ordering us to whatever track some addresses or whatever, you shouldn't rely on us to refuse and close our business just to protect your privacy. So the best thing again is to just make ourselves redundant. So in the Bitbox app, it's very easy just to remove our servers. And if you run your own node, um, for example, uh, an, like Raspi Bolt, my own project, which is like, okay, I want some pain, but I want to learn how it's actually <laughs> built, um, to a Raspi Blitz, which is more automated, to an Umbrel node, which you just download and it, it runs. Mm -hmm. It, again, it's like um, Umbrella is probably the, the Ubuntu of full nodes. It's, it's the easiest. I don't want it to be. I don't. I want to care about anything. It's just mm. 
I just want to have my node. Um, then you can just remove the servers uh, of Shift Crypto and add your own full node directly in the Bitbox app. And the Bitbox app never needs to call home again. So that's our answer to protect also, to make you more private. And privacy is one thing. So you, you leak less information. You tell one less third party how many Bitcoin you have. Um, but you also don't trust one less third party to tell you, for example, if the Bitcoin you receive are actually real Bitcoin. Mm, yeah. Because in the, in the process of maybe a hard fork or anything, if you don't run your own full node, you don't have a say in it. What is Bitcoin? And you need to rely on someone else to say, yes, this transaction is valid or we refuse to accept this transaction because it doesn't follow the rules or the, the consent, the Nakamoto consensus. And if you're on your own node, it's like your coin, uh, your, uh, your keys, your coins, your node, your rules. Mm. Yeah, that, that, that's excellent. We, we need to definitely talk about full nodes. Cause I, I, I've done my own dedicated full node, you know, running a Linux server and all that kind of stuff, but I, I know that's, that's not for everyone. And I, I think Faris was uh, interested at one point, but he'd probably kill me if uh, we went down that, <laughs> down that road. So, uh, as you said, there, there are many different, um, Linux distributions and, and you have written actually the guide for the Raspberry Pi. And is, is that, has that got a lightning, uh, node in there as well? Yeah, um, you, yeah, you can link on it uh, maybe in the show notes. It's raspybolt.org. Okay. Um, it starts off with setting up a Raspberry Pi with the um, Debian-based um, operating system, uh, making it secure, adding Tor, all that stuff. Then you install Bitcoin Core. You install your own blockchain explorer. Um, so you don't need to look up like transactions on a third-party blockchain explorer and leaking your IP address together with the address that you just looked up, which is also kind of a privacy loss. Um, you install your own Electrum server, so you can use your node with um, the, your hardware wallets, which I think is very important. Yeah. And then you install a Lightning node, you install many other stuff, and there are many bonus guides. So I think it, it should cover every angle that you might have. Um, and we try right. to keep it up to date. It's no longer just my project. I open sourced it as well. So there are like many contributors, many maintainers that also can update the guide and keep it like correct and current. So Raspberry Pi plus, say, an external hard drive, SD? It's basically what you need, yeah. Raspberry Pi plus an SST, which would, what I would recommend, with one gigabyte. And that that's it. And but that's again, approved. You don't need to have a dedicated device necessarily. There are ways to install Bitcoin Core on your own regular computer. For example, then use Sparrow Wallet, uh, which can connect directly to Bitcoin Core. And mm. then you can connect the Bitbox O2 directly uh, to Sparrow Wallet and still keep your keys secure. So that's something that is also really um, well maintained. Mm. I, uh, Faris is getting sleepy. He's in New Zealand <laughs> and uh, I'm getting hungry. Uh, I, I want to talk to you about multi-sig <laughs> and maybe why it's not a good idea. I want to talk to you all, all, all kinds of stuff. But And, and uh, just recently, uh, as everyone knows, 
um, the Ledger and both the Ledger and Trezor's, um, not not their actual database, but their sort of marketing art database from customers' information. Because we know because our email address was in there and I get spam messages all the time from it. Mm-hmm. What is Shift doing to protect their customers from perhaps physical threats? So that's a very pointy question because like two weeks ago, um, we also lost some email addresses. So I will oh. definitely not point fingers to um, <laughs> our yep. competitors. Um, again, I think what we what we did, um, and also I, I can start with why we actually use an external service. Um, so of course we clearly separate like the the support emails, shop emails from like marketing emails, which are opt in. And but we do see a lot of value in being able to to send like more like yeah. <laughs> usually it's called marketing emails, but for me it's more about education. Send being able to send out guides. Um, if you buy a Bitbox, you can like tick a box, and then you get like a five step email tutorial that explains in great detail how to actually set up the Bitbox and use it and make a backup and on and so on. I think this is a very important thing. And unfortunately for Moss emails, running your own email server is just not feasible. You need to land on one blacklist and your whole domain is going to be blocked for all emails forever. There's no recourse. So it's a very dedicated technology. It needs a lot of know-how to run an email service Mm. like this. And unfortunately, that's not something we can do internally. We used ActiveCampaign and they lost some of our email addresses um police is investigating they contracted a security consultancy so um that that's the, probably the most you can do um but i'm very very glad that we only um shared the minimal information with them in the mm. first place so again like yep. security by obscurity doesn't it just doesn't scale you need to like just like collect the least amount of data that you need. And fortunately, like no physical addresses or wherever, we never give that to any external party, even Mm. in our own shop, we anonymize it after 30 days. So it's just like email address and maybe first and last name, but that's it. And we've seen one spam email so far that went to our users, but fortunately we were able to warn them like, also sending them one email and now we're looking into how to move forward. But again, I think the most valuable thing in that is to be um, humble, acknowledge Mm. uh, that something happened, put your users first, inform them immediately. We gave them, I think very uh, decent advice of what is affected, what is not affected. Basically look out for scam emails. That's about the extent and yeah, um, I think there are some lessons to be learned for us as well, but we I'd, will continue to to explore and use emails for educational purposes. And there's no th- such thing as an unhackable service, unfortunately. But I, I guess at least in, in, with being a more explicit and more transparent how data is handled, we can improve mm-hmm. a bit on that. I, I really appreciate your I, I genuinely didn't know that, so I wasn't like trolling you or anything like that. Um, I, I just happened to see another spam email this morning from Ledger's, yeah, whatever. Um, and as I said, you know, 
the reality nowadays of marketing and the email lists and stuff like that is is that you know you do have to use third parties whatever. But as long as people are aware, you know, that's sort of how it's being used. This is how it is. And as, as you said, as long as it, as long as it's transparent, the user can click, you know, opt out or or whatever it is. So yeah, as long as it's transparent, I, I think it's fine. So in the, in the European Union, it's actually super. Um, explicit with data protection, GDPR, you need to opt in explicitly. There's a double opt in. You also need to confirm by email a second time that you want to get added to a list. So that, that was already in place, of course. Um, yeah. And then of course, email is not really a secure technology anymore. I think it's mm. fundamentally broken, unfortunately. Um, but it's still like, it's, it's a good tool, but sooner or later you should assume that you you will get some spam through your email addresses in any case unfortunately which of course doesn't make doesn't excuse us like fucking up with user user data but yeah email ad- just don't put any sensitive information in any external service and i think that's the best way to do and absolutely that of course yep minimize minimize your information i was at a coffee shop the other day and they had a rewards program or whatever and i saw someone else filling it in they're putting in phone numbers putting i'm like what are you doing just just for the you know buy 10 coffees go on free giving away all this ridiculous data and i actually had a conversation with them about privacy and whatnot i'm like well what do you put on i said well number one i don't sign up for those stuff and number two if i was i would put a fake name and a you know temporary email address i mean Mm -hmm. uh and they're like, oh, you can do that, can you? I'm like, oh. <laughs> so, yeah, we're living in a different reality with some people. Um, I want to answer, I want to ask so many other questions, but I'll leave them perhaps the next time. I guess I'll just finish on this one last question. This is, I guess what a lot of people are sort of a little bit worried about is how do I know that I'm getting a genuine advice? You know, I bought it from whatever store. It might've come from a shipping agent. I'm opening a package. I'm about to buy $100,000 worth of Bitcoins on the Bitbox, how do I know that someone hasn't tampered with it? You know, supply chain attacks, all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Could you perhaps ease people's minds? Um, yeah, I'll try to. But um, I think it's... it's So what you're referring to is the supply chain vulnerability. So somebody in the process of handling devices, maybe even before they are produced, like spare parts, or after they have been produced, um, that there are no additional chips soldered in, that there's no additional like fake manuals or download links added to that stuff. When you order it from Amazon, you don't know who had access to the device and you need to make sure it hasn't been tampered with. And of course, it's a, it's a genuine device in the first place. So there are a lot of moving parts there. The, the most important thing is that we start with production in Switzerland that we can actually supervise and program every device ourselves. So when we put on that, like the, the the cryptographic keys that validate the firmware and everything, that's, that's not definitely not outsourced. That's somebody from our key engineering team doing it himself. And doing that allows us to have a cryptographic authenticity check so if you have, um, let's say, uh, the, the real Bitbox app downloaded from our website and you get a fake Bitbox, there's, there's going to be a super big, red, scary warning to immediately contact support because every, every 
um, time you connect the Bitbox to the Bitbox app, there's a cryptographic response, challenge, challenge response um, check. And only uh, genuine uh, Bitboxes are able to like provide the correct answer to the challenge. And the same goes, um, of course, for the, if you download the fake Bitbox app or whatever other wallet, because the Bitbox always assume that the software app is already compromised. Maybe a virus in the backend, but also maybe a completely fake app. So it never trusts the information it gets from your computer. The only scenario where there's really nothing that we can do is if you have a fake Bitbox app and a fake um, Bitbox, because of course then everybody can do everything. Um, but as long as one of these components is, is genuine, you're safe. Another thing is that once you have a genuine like Bitbox, um, it's made out of two plastic shells um, that are glued together so that you can only open it in a destructive way. The whole inside is like, like filled with military-grade epoxy. So if you open it up and try to access whatever, you'll basically rip the chips off from the PCB board. So it's like made in a way that is not, that you cannot open it undetected and put it back together again. And there are many more protections like that. It comes in a sealed vacuum bag with a security print around the edges. Um, and, and, and it's all on the website. You, you mentioned mm. like security features. We go into it's very, very impressive security um, feature there. But nothing is like 100% in itself. We just try to add so many security mm. features on mm. top of each other that it's really not feasible anymore to, to mm. just ship you a, a fake bitbox or a tampered bitbox and you wouldn't notice. So definitely anyone listening, buy it from original sources, buy it from your website. Don't buy it from uh, joeshardwarewallets.com. <laughs> Although I'm not sure that may be an address. I don't know. Uh, probably not an official reseller. I guess it's 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 actually not that bad with the bitbox. I we don't usually don't like discourage people to buy from Amazon if they want to, because the supply chain security with the 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 the, the, the vacuum bag and everything, and especially the cryptographic um, authenticity check, it it should really hold up even to to attacks like that. Mm. Excellent. Well, we really appreciate your time. Um, I have one last very important question, probably the most important question of the whole interview. When was the last time you played Age of Empires? Oh, because I need to reboot my computer in the Windows to do that. It's been quite a <laughs> while. But every time I get bored, like two times a year, maybe, <laughs> I'll do that. But it's, I, I'm not really... I, I enjoy solo sessions. I'm not good enough to compete against like multi player online with people i don't mm. know so i'm i'm a super casual gamer cool yeah you, you're probably a guy like me enough hours in the day yeah exactly you're you're probably like me i've got linux but i've got that windows 10 partition you know just occasionally <laughs> need to yeah. need to play a few games you know True. but then i'm too lazy to reboot my computer into it so i'm like nah don't worry exactly 
Staticus, it's been a real pleasure having you on. We, um, I actually mentioned earlier, I've gotten a, a Bitbox um, edition I'm going to be uh, playing with and doing a review on. Um, so we'd love to have you on again after, after that. Um, but for the time being, uh, where can people find you, follow you? Just tell us where you'd, you'd like, uh, like us to send our guests. So, of course, like um, Bitbox Shift Crypto um, is shiftcrypto.ch. CH, by the way, stands for Switzerland, not for China, how some people <laughs> expect. Um, shiftcrypto.ch. It's, we have a ton of uh, information, know-how, blog, th- threat model, all that stuff. So you, you mm-hmm. can really dig deep um, to make an informed decision if the Bitbox is the right choice for you. Um, for me personally, uh, I would say staticus.com. Um, it's like the most bare bones website. It's not even mobile ready, but it has some links to my GPG key or to my, to the recipe bolt and stuff like that. And I guess I'm most active on Twitter. Like most Bitcoiners DMS are always open. So if you have any questions, feel free to DM me and I'll do my best to, to answer them. Fantastic. Yeah. Th- thanks again for your time. And, and thanks again for your honesty too. I, 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 sometimes when you get people on to review perhaps products and stuff like that, they're a little bit rainbows and unicorns, but I think you've given a, a fairly candid um, response to, to all that sort of stuff. But um, yeah, well, we'll definitely, I, I, I will admit I've used pretty much every hardware device out there, uh, including building my own hardware on a, on a Raspberry Pi, which was a disaster um except for big box so i'll have a play with that and we would yeah there you go <laughs> we'd uh we'd love to have you on if if you could in two three months after us having a play and, and we might have some sure. more questions yeah of course and hit me hard with your questions uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't like right. security theater <laughs> so i'll tell you if something is in or out of scope scope of our threat model or if we can do better fantastic uh-huh. important thank you again for the long run <laughs> no worries. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks, Dedicus. All right. Thank Bye you. so much. Thanks for watching or listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please like, subscribe, and share so we can spread this educational content to others like yourself. Visit bitcoinbasics.help. Disclaimer. Any content provided by CoinCompass is for educational and informational purposes only and is not investment, legal, tax, or any other professional advice. A qualified professional should be consulted before making any financial decisions. CoinCompass will at times recommend certain products, services, and technologies, but these are opinions based upon our own or podcast guests' experience and not endorsements. We take no liability for out-of-date or inaccurate information, software bugs, manufacturing errors, technology misuse, or issues involving third parties. Visit coincompass.com for more information and please contact us.